George Washington Carver was an African-American agricultural scientist and inventor who worked to prevent soil depletion. Peanuts and sweet potatoes were were a way to improve the soil after growing cotton, which was the predominant crop in the southern U.S. Peanuts were considered junk or some or something to feed the cattle. He came up with 105 food recipes using peanuts. Born in 1864, he was a leader in promoting environmentalism and received many awards for his work. Thank you very much for that information. 18 past 10 and standing by, Colin Peacock. Good not, evening. Not powered by peanuts. <laughs> Do you like peanut butter? No. On, don't you? Nope. No, I don't like peanuts. Don't like peanut butter. Why not? Too slimy. And I, I think it, it compromises the you know essential strategic integrity and uh, aesthetic quality of the actual peanut, which I just prefer to be roasted. And um, <laughs> that's, just, that's just the way I am. <laughs> Yeah, okay. But everyone else in my family likes peanut butter, and also I don't like they leave the sticky knife with the peanut butter dripping down it for other people to clean up. And um, like dad. Yep. So I take the knife, clean the knife, put the lid on, put it back in the cupboard, and try to pretend that peanut butter doesn't exist. <laughs> right. Well, that's that then. Okay. Well, let's get on to happier news. As I said, big story of the week so far: certain world championship won by a certain rugby team. Yes, indeed. That Women's Rugby World Cup victory still huge in the news. I mean, obviously a huge deal for sport and achievement in and of itself. Big story for New Zealand media because the tournament was here at home. But, you know, it's also being talked about as uh, either possibly or definitely, depending on who you talk to, a transformational moment, not just in sport, but also for society. Uh, again, depending on who you're talking to. I listened to some talkback radio today all about uh, you know, following up on the Prime Minister's comments about um, the women's sport, women's rugby, they should get equal billing, sponsorship, etc. And huge amount of input on that. Everyone seemed to have a view. Politicians uh, were being quizzed about this as soon as normal business re- uh, resumed on Monday. Uh, Deputy Prime Minister Grant Robertson, also the Sports Minister, of course, was being quizzed about it as Acting Prime Minister. Um also, Mark Robinson, uh, the New Zealand board chair, he's now feeling the heat on what he's going to do to capitalise on that. And it's all a bit awkward for him because if you remember, in fact, we spoke about this, didn't we, on Midweek Media Watch uh, when the rugby union scheduled an All Blacks test overlapping with the uh, Black Ferns quarterfinal against Wales. That was a really bad look. And now I think that's kind of up the pressure. Um, one of the Bits of commentary quite interesting was veteran sports editor Trevor McEwen writing for Business Desk. Um, he basically summed up the pressure on the, uh, New Zealand rugby, saying they now have to show the same courage as the Black Ferns have shown. He writes, uh, the nation has told New Zealand rugby boss Mark Robinson what it wants, um, and it should come uh, with a reminder that this is sport, not a money-making corporate. Um, they have to embrace the golden opportunity New Zealand rugby has been handed. And similarly, on the, the spin-off, Duncan Grieve, uh, the editor there, had a, a similar sort of message. He says, NZ Rugby is the kaitiaki of the Black Ferns, has total control over the long-term outcome of this. He says, uh, hundreds of thousands of brand new and very passionate fans will be watching what they do. Don't mess it up. So lots of pressure. And a similar sort of message actually came immediately after the final whistle. Former Blackfern and commentator Christina Sue was saying similar things on the um, the Spark Sport TV3 coverage after the game. And um, I don't have audio of that, but she did speak about uh, those comments that she made 
on Morning Report on Monday. You know, let's hope Mark Robinson can be the next in terms of, um, it's similar to what Alice Soper said, in, in that image, we want to see the end of amateurism and the attitudes um, in, in the administrators and hopefully that they do take it serious and know that, you know, gone are the days where they said that women's rugby wasn't entertaining, it didn't sell out stadiums. Well, there's been a lot of emotion generated by the win, Colin. Genuine hope that it's going to boost women's rugby and equality in sport, obviously. Uh, but do you reckon it would be happening if they'd lost? Yeah, so a few days on from the, the 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 result, that was a point quite a few people were making on the talk radio I was listening to this afternoon. And I, w- I went back to the, the France semi-final, which I saw. They could have been out then. Uh, not only that penalty kick missed in the last uh, few seconds, but um, the French had an opportunity to score a try before that which, I mean, that really would have put a downer on the tournament because I really doubt that uh, the media would be amping people's calls for more investment uh, in the game to anything like the same degree uh, if there'd been a, a France-England final in a half-empty Eden Park uh, that hardly anyone would have watched here. Um, and Susan uh, Suzanne McFadden, who was the founder of the Locker Room site, that's part of the newsroom, .co.nz operation that's devoted entirely to women's sport she pointed out that actually if if England had won that final against the Black Ferns with only 14 women on the field for I think about three quarters of the game that would have actually been a huge uh, moment as well and in in England that would have might have been regarded as a kind of uh, kickoff point for the game and they had a similar moment with their football that we talked about on Midweek Media Watch when England became the European champions there and uh, in fact I remember one of the Wales players talking on the BBC saying yeah it's such a shame this thing's in, on in New Zealand because the rugby's great but no one's watching here in the UK because it's in the middle of the night so for them I think it would have been a, a very different thing however having said that I mean when Eden Park was full for that final or near full. And there was something of a different atmosphere, not that I'm much of a rugby watcher. Um, at one moment, people have commented, I think it was Stacey Flula who had to come off injured after scoring. And I think the Black Friends were still behind at that point where she had to be replaced. And she was smiling and walking off and enjoying the atmosphere and just thinking you wouldn't see that in the men's game where it, it, it just would be too uptight. <laughs> They'd be worried about winning the game. And uh, of, of all the many sort of vox pops and bits that um, probably sum up the atmosphere and people's responses, I'm, I'm just going to pick one short one. This was from uh, Nicole Bremner on One News, her report uh, of uh, one particular uh, supporter who seemed a bit refreshed but still delivered um, quite, a, quite a good soundbite. Oh man, emotions, emotions packed! I'm an Australian and I cried. <laughs> I'm Australian? He is. He cried. He cried, mate. He was moved. Yeah. <laughs> well, World Cups obviously don't come around that often. Uh, is the media asking if it can be, this can be sustained? And you reckon they'd be as, as interested in women's rugby outside of a big home tournament that the media can actually focus on? Yeah, well, I, I believe this is the sixth time that the Ferns have won that World Cup. So you would be thinking, uh, why hasn't this happened before? Uh, and several pundits have made that point. They really need, need the games. In fact, the Minister of Sport, Grant Robertson, made that exact point. And, you know, this happened before with football when uh, the All Whites got to the FIFA World Cup in 2010. Uh, people there, they, they did really well. They didn't qualify, but they were unbeaten. And people thought, oh, it's really going to take off now. Um, but it, it really didn't because no one comes this far to play them and it's difficult for them to get fixtures against good sides. So that's obviously a part of it. But one thing that was big a big deal was that this, or at least 
important and big games were free to wear on TV3. Some delayed the later stages live. Uh, as well as streaming the whole thing, the whole tournament streamed live uh, via Spark Sport. But being on telly made a big, big difference. And that was a point made by the tournament director, Michelle Hooper, on Morning Report on Tuesday when she was asked by Marnie Dunlop, actually, why weren't all the games live on free-to-air TV? Spark Sport did their best to get that agreement with um, TV3 and do the free-to-air partnership. But broadcast in general is not something that we control. That was done by World Rugby. Uh, and I think that having at least having those finals matches on um, free-to-air and the delayed coverage during the tournament of the pool stage matches with the Blackburns at least meant that New Zealanders were able to watch, even if it was delayed, and at least having the final live um, has proved to be um, absolute necessity. Yeah, so I think that's the difference. And we've seen this with other sports as well. When tournaments are on pay TV, the audience doesn't, it doesn't quite catch fire as a sort of shared national event. And... Discovery released some figures, uh, that's the owner of, of Channel 3, uh, they say more than 1.2 million viewers, uh, almost two-thirds of the entire TV audience on that Saturday night, watched an all-time record for the channel. Uh, also that audience coveted by advertisers of people aged 25 to 54, three-quarters of them were watching. And uh, Duncan Grebe, the spin-off, taking a look at these figures, says, you know, this pulled in an enormous and demographic-spanning audience, which shows the sporting landscape in the country will never be the same again, which is a bold call. But he says this instantly changes the dynamic around the Black Ferns when it comes to TV rights, sponsorships, and the scheduling. Um, And we'll see. Uh, But I think it does need, as, as you know, we said earlier, more games to make it so. And again, perhaps a parallel with England and their uh, women's football team that just exploded after winning that tournament earlier in the year. Um, And they were able to play big games and have a professional league kick off after that off the back of it, which has been really well attended and broadcast and so on. So, yeah, having those matches clearly makes the difference. But free to air tally for that tournament to create that national moment, essential. What about the players themselves, the box office now? <laughs> yeah, they are. And one in particular, Ruby Tui, is the one that's getting a lot of attention. She was on uh, the project on three uh, last night, I think. Um, and she's an absolute natural on the media. And I was watching that uh, thinking she's going to end up with her own show. Um, I know she's got a book out <laughs> at the moment, but yeah. Simon Wilson in the Herald uh, actually had the same idea. He said, uh, what's Ruby Tui going to do after rugby? Prime Minister would be quite exciting. He says, <laughs> Queen of the Universe seems fair. Mm. But he also had this suggestion. Uh, she'd be good as a radio host on News Talk ZB. Imagine it, all the wit and quickfire daring of a Mike Hosking or Heather Duplessy Allen, but she'd also bring, you know, being Ruby Tui. Um, and he, he's kidding, I suppose, but um, what was kind of interesting was in the run-up to the... They, they were so... Not just Ruby Tui, but all the Black Ferns seemed to have... This very different vibe, very comfortable with the media. It's often different with the All Blacks who are quite guarded about what they say. Though I don't blame them because they get so heavily managed and overexposed and, and people take it all so seriously. But in the run-up to the final, uh, there was a nice moment that people uh, I know in the media really appreciated when Ruby Tui, I think it was their final press conference, she actually thanked the media uh, for their work. The audio on this isn't great, it's a bit off mic, but you get the sentiment. I wrap up, I just want to say thank you um, to everybody who's in this room, all the media outlets. You guys probably just do this for your job and for your mahi, but you're actually um, changing our lives and getting us um, pay slips. So thank you so much. <laughs> keep coming, keep please. Coming. Uh, yeah, sending love and kisses and keep sending those. So.
Yeah, so I think <laughs> Ruby 2 was kind of kidding when she said, you know, credit to the media with giving them pay slips, but sort of not because, you know, as you could hear on the radio today, a lot of people getting behind that call to get them, you know, a big bonus or something in the, in the likes of the, um, or on the ballpark of the $150,000, I think the men's, the All Blacks uh, will get if they win the World Cup. And, uh, you know, the, the media is definitely uh, a part of that. So, uh, yeah, she, she clearly understands the way the media works. What do you reckon? How much? They'll get as a bonus. Mm, they I've, should get as a bonus. I've no idea. I wouldn't I wouldn't want to say. I mean, it was interesting when it was discussed on the radio because um, one person actually said, you know, this is a bit like um, never go supermarket shopping when you're hungry um, because, you know, you'll spend too much saying this is a, a, you know, a, a moment – that they've just had the the final uh, everyone's euphoric, um, but uh, a lot of the callers were all sort of saying uh, steady on. Um, you know they don't generate the money the men do. You know who's going to turn out to see them play? I don't know Scotland at um, three a.m. if they go on a world tour, and they get these fixtures, and um, you know in the knowledge that you know that the All Blacks are a kind of a cash cow that funds the rest of rugby. So there was a lot of that sort of talk on the radio. But yeah, clearly there is. Um, Partly in response to the Prime Minister's comments, but, you know, there is um, a a real strong push that the New Zealand Rugby Union will will find it pretty hard to resist. And in fact, um, Heather Duplessis-Allen on News Talk ZB was saying they've got to do this soon. The longer they leave it, the worse they look. So she she is uh, clearly one amping up the pressure on the Rugby Union to come up with a, a number. Talking about ZB here, there's a text here for you. Colin, Tim Beveridge dumped all over the Black Ferns early this morning on ZB. So negative, one ten am Oh, didn't, didn't <laughs> one ten am in the morning. Goodness yeah. me, well, that's a dedicated listener. Uh, didn't hear it, <laughs> wasn't monitoring the media at that particular point. But, uh, yeah, I, 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 think it's, I think it's hard to make that, um, you know, it's hard to make that, that point now in in the media because everyone's so excited about what they've done but there, there were certainly plenty of callers in the afternoon in the more respectable hours making that point that um you, you know you've got to earn it they've got to see it and and that winning winning this tournament in front of uh, you know a new audience is all very well but um Duncan Greve the spin-off made another point in his thing saying you know investment is the key word here because you know the All Blacks to make them the titan they are now uh that has required investment and and also saying there is hundreds of thousands of people that showed an interest in the Black Ferns that probably wouldn't have in, you know, the All Blacks on a northern tour, say, um, you know, that's the opportunity there. So that's all these things the Rugby Union and the broadcasters and the rest of the media will be weighing up. And Colin, there have been reports this week that stuff journalists may strike. Yeah, this is um, this is a tricky one. So we heard last week that reporters might sort of down tools for a couple of hours this week to sort of signal discontent with a pay deal uh, that's ongoing, uh, and that uh, next week there was the possibility if they don't get what they want that the reporters might strike for a full day. Um, now, Stuff and the Etu Union, that's the main union for journalists, uh, are not commenting on this while negotiations are still ongoing. But we've seen posters and, and flyers that have been... Um, circulated around stuff employees saying that um, you know the management in the past have made these sort of all together or all in this together 
type statements and they don't feel the management has kind of backed that up with the reality they face. Um, so what's happened, I believe, is that uh, been, there's been a below inflation pay offer to them, which uh, they are unhappy about because a lot of people have worked in difficult conditions through the pandemic at times when you know, their business was very, very uncertain. So yeah, they're, they're not happy with what the management have been able to offer. And they're also unhappy about staff leaving. And currently there is that regional reorganisation that will see fewer reporters at their uh, regional newsrooms that's being considered by the country. So difficult times and uh, didn't get much better when uh, the, the New Zealand Herald uh, reported yesterday that um, the uh, chief content officer had emailed the staff to say, you know, they're not happy about this being leaked to other media uh, and saying this is a fly in the ointment, to use her words, to progress in good faith talks uh, with the union. And they're urging uh, news reporters who, uh, and she does acknowledge in the email, we can't quibble when leaked stuff ends up, you know, with the media because, you know, that's how we get stories. But uh, they're saying, look, while the negotiations are ongoing, talk to colleagues, talk to your managers, um, because uh, this is still a deal yet to be done. Well, we, pay's never been that great for journalists, but industrial action would be relatively rare. Yeah, the, when the New Zealand Herald reported on this last week, it said... Um, the last strike was in 2001. I'm not sure that's quite right because uh, there was, I think, industrial action. There were certainly protests back in 2007 when uh, APN, which was then the owner of the Herald, that was an Australian-owned company, um, and, and its other North Island papers like Northern Advocate and um, the Whanganui Chronicle and so on, they outsourced their subbing and their layout uh, to another facility in Ellerslie and that uh, was something the journalists took really seriously I think there was also strike action even though it may not have been for very long at RNZ in the early 2000s before my time here and RNZ is also uh, in negotiation with its staff uh, about um, pay rise and uh, you know there's some anxiety about what's likely to be offered or what has been offered already so uh, yeah that's a kind of watch the space situation as well but uh, this week the the Herald's owner NZME downgraded its earnings forecast and they cited a lower than expected advertising revenue and that is likely to be the same I imagine at, at stuff where we know they're making some difficult decisions about those regional newsrooms so yeah possibly uh, for the commercial media company, some tough times ahead. And global media now, and could Elon Musk just stay out of the news for a few minutes? <laughs> yeah. Well, last last weekend, Hayden Donnell ran through on the Media Watch program a few of his his dramas, and how just how many people he's annoyed. I, I think he's rolled back some of the things that he's done or announced in the last few days. So I think the uh, the, the the life cycle of those stories has slowed down a little bit. But now I believe, you know, I've seen the, the website TechCrunch reporting that they may be in danger of uh, not complying fully with data protection requirements in the European Union. And because they say they're headquartered in Ireland uh, for purposes of, um, as other tech companies are, because it's financially beneficial, um, if, if, they, if they fail to comply, that could have a huge effect on the company. So we'll see. That's uh, not a story that's been confirmed. But you know, I thought some people were comparing Twitter to the Titanic. And one of these uh, critics on Twitter, he put it, um, that analogy would only work if the actual iceberg had purchased the Titanic before sinking it, which I thought was a nice way of putting it.
And for all the drama surrounding it and the jokes, how significant is it really? Uh, you know, for some, the, the Twitter platform is a big part of life. For others, and most people in the world, it's not that relevant. Yeah, I think that's true to say. I mean, even when you compare it with other big global social media platforms, but journalists are a bit obsessed with it because it's the place where news often breaks first and is analysed and responded to first and fastest. Um, pretty handy tool for, for journalists who don't want to miss things. But you know, some of the commentary in the States is saying, look, Twitter becoming, uh, as the buzzword is, the hellscape of misinformation and just general bad stuff would actually further weaken democracy, which is already creaking a bit as the US, in the US, as we seem to see every time we turn the news on, and that that could actually spill over into public life a bit. So yeah, possibly. And all those um, tweets with the blue tick too, um, somebody's hacked in and, you know, uh, done, done stuff like insulin is now free, you know, that has that cost um, the, the pharmaceutical company millions off their share price. Yeah, completely unforeseen uh, consequences and, uh, of course, when... Uh, Elon Musk boldly said we're going to put a price on this, which is Hayden mentioned in the week. He ended up negotiating this via Twitter with um, the writer Stephen King, uh, initially climbing down from twenty bucks to eight. But, you know, then very quick. I mean, they, 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 clearly, it's it's not even unforeseen consequences, is it? If you put it up for sale like that, then anyone who wants to get some sort of measure of perceived authenticity but has bad motives can easily become authenticated and, uh, and you know, the a- algorithm will amplify their mischief for the cost of eight bucks. It's ridiculous. I mean, I can't believe someone who, you know, runs a huge business like Tesla and, uh, and whatever else he's involved with would not be able to see that that was a problem. So, yeah, I mean, there's plenty more to come. But, yeah, a lot of people think now he heavily regrets uh, making that purchase and not just because of the epic sum that he paid for it. Epic. Mm-hmm. Uh, social media se- seems to get a lot of blame for you know, all social problems, uh, <laughs> but is it making them worse? Yeah, it's hard to say. And on that, I've got mixed feelings about it. And um, there was a good piece by uh, the veteran journalist and columnist Gordon Campbell who take a, took a look at this. He uh, addressed this to what he called the preachers of the social media apocalypse, who he thinks are overstating it. He, he referred back to his jumping off point for this was uh, the prime minister announcing this document called the uh, National Security Long Term Insights document, which listed five threats of most concern to New Zealanders over the coming year, um, which were natural disaster misinformation, hacking, another health epidemic, and organised crime. And so Gordon's take on that was, you know, seemingly misinformation for Kiwis is up there with climate change on the worry index. Uh, Shouldn't we all be a bit more worried about that? Mm, Can't we or shouldn't we be worried about both? Yeah, I think so. But uh, I think Gordon was making the point that social media um, content seems to be misidentified as an overwhelmingly pressing problem. He doesn't believe it is. In fact, he said, I presumably with tongue-in-cheek, you know, a conspiracy exists to inflate the importance of social media conspiracies in the media. So he's saying only a small minority are ever really likely to be a threat because of what they read, hear, or see on social media. Uh, but, the, you know, these... these this, possibility of violent extremism and influence uh, is running rampant in people's minds that's uh, but he he just doesn't think it's that big a deal and um yeah that it's overstated and the media are kind of falling into a trap but presumably the likes of the SIS and the GCSB aren't raising the alarm for no reason 
Yeah, and Gordon's sort of making a slightly different point when he says um, the rise in right-wing populism or the erosion of faith in democratic institutions, which a lot of people say social media is making worse or even creating. He says, look, that's really a response to the destruction of jobs and community by economic policies. You know, it's not online misinformation. And he reckons that the news media actually shifting the blame for it. He says, getting all hot and bothered, uh, quoting here, about the dreadful stuff on social media is a diversion that assumes we can somehow clean up social media without addressing uh, the mainstream politics that continues to feed populist anger. So that's that's his take. Uh, sounds a bit hypothetical. Did he give any examples? Well, one, he gave a couple, but one was that he says here that uh, we have one of our major political parties, and he means the National Party, has been depicting government spending as being out of control. Gordon Campbell says it's not by an OECD standard. Uh, moreover, most of that spending was to counter COVID and address uh, social deficits in health, housing, child poverty, infrastructure, etc. Um, so he's saying media conventions enable these messages that are you know, political messages to be repeated almost every night on mass media virtually without challenge. So while that's happening, he thinks, you know, there's a, a too easy and unproven link being made by the media to, you know, social ills being at, laid at the door of the amplification that's possible via social media. Well, online information and unpleasant bad news in, in news bulletins, well, they can both have a negative social effect, but aren't they also two different things? Yeah, well, they overlap, but yeah, I think I think they are, because what he was talking about there, say the the, the so-called wasteful spending, um, that's a political issue. I mean, I've heard those political claims being, uh, you know, and the, and the fact that they're supposedly inflationary and so on. That's been pretty widely debated in political coverage and uh, in um, debates uh, on on reputable news outlets with mass audiences. So it's not as if they've been ignored. And that connection that um, Gordon is talking about isn't. Being analysed, so journalists and commentators can and do, uh, you know, correct if that's the right word, or, or scrutinise what he believes are these kind of overreported and contestable claims being made in the media that are political. But you know, the sort of misinformation on social media and deliberate misinformation, malicious stuff that that isn't often moderated, you know, in the same way. But Gordon made another um, sort of good point where he says that that actually he believes the research is pretty sketchy about whether. Uh, social media's, uh, in his words, alleged superpowers of persuasion uh, are real. Um, if anything, he says there's research that shows that um, fear and anger and uncertainty is, can be generated by mainstream media coverage that gets reinterpreted and passed on, that actually they, <laughs> the mainstream media start things that social media ends up amplifying, not perhaps the other way around. But he also thinks in the end um, social media is uh, beneficial and democratising and enables people who are formerly invisible to have their views in a public arena invisible to themselves and to other people who may hold those views or may oppose them and that he thinks on balance, you know, that's a good thing. So it's it's worth a read even if you don't quite agree with his premise of, you know, the mainstream media's role in it. Where do you find this? Oh, yeah, Gordon Campbell writes on the Scoop website. He's got his own sort of section of that. He writes three or four columns a week, and they're good because they're often quite long but but considered uh, with lots of references in them to other other work. Um, and, you know, for years, of course, he wrote journalism and long-form stuff in the New Zealand Listener magazine. Um, but he's also, he was a rock critic 
uh, for the listener. I think going back all the way to the 1970s and often on his columns on, on Scoop, they're not often, often shared or amplified on social media. You have to say you have to do the old-fashioned thing of going to the, the uh, scoop.co.nz website to, to get them. Um, but he also links to uh, interesting music. Uh, so he's kept up his interest in music over the years and pops in a few gems and uh, Spotify playlist occasionally and YouTube links to um, fascinating music which often uh, tie in obliquely with the theme of what he's writing about so yeah well worth a look well let, let's end with wait for it the anniversary of the exploding whale <laughs> yes 52 <laughs> years ago this week yeah it's classic report so uh this was uh, and forgive me this has been doing the rounds on social media um it just as uh, gordon campbell was suggesting it does have the powers of amplification so if everyone's seen this and I'm the last person to have seen it, forgive me, but uh, yeah, the uh, Oregon station KATU uh, reported uh, on this week, of, uh, 52 years ago, on an eight-ton decomposing 45-foot-long whale that uh, the local authorities decided to blow up with half a ton of dynamite uh, to get rid of it, and uh, it didn't go to plan. Our cameras stopped rolling immediately after the blast, the humor of the entire situation suddenly gave way to a run for survival as huge chunks of whale blubber fell everywhere. Pieces of meat passed high over our heads while others were falling at our feet. The dunes were rapidly evacuated as spectators escaped both the falling debris and the overwhelming smell. A parked car over a quarter of a mile from the blast site was the target of one large chunk. The passenger compartment literally smashed. Fortunately, no human was hit as badly as the car. However, everyone on the scene was covered with small particles of dead whale. What the? He, he reported that in a very straight way. There were no jokes, there were no puns. Oh, he, he did actually make one. He made a joke about land lubbers uh, rubbernecking and, watch, and getting covered in blubber, land lubbers blubber. No, it was pretty good. But, you know, I was thinking that, that style of delivery is so straight. I think you still hear American network and local news reports like that, you know, we see a lot of the shouting and the cable news and the, the unscripted stuff. But I think, you know, a lot of reporters still report that way with the sort of earnestness that would leave you to believe that you couldn't possibly contradict anything that was being said, even though, you know, that was a style in use um, more than a half a century ago. Would it be disgusting, that whole thing? When they did the actual 54321 and the whale being blown apart, uh, you could hear in the soundtrack the bits of soggy stuff uh, tumbling through the air and landing, uh, you know, close to the microphone. And yeah, apparently of the nearly hundred people that were there, um, yeah, everyone got got covered in this um, highly uh, offensively smelling um, decomposing stuff. So yeah, I think he did well to report quite so straight from uh, such a, a revolting event as that. Revolting, and also, you know, I also think not very respectful. If that had happened in New Zealand now, or even you know years ago, um, local Māori iwi would have performed a really Great ceremony, probably. Yeah, apparently it had been so long since a whale had washed up uh, in that part of uh, of the state uh, near a place called Florence uh, that they didn't really know what to do. And it was actually the local transport authority uh, that came up with the idea of blowing it apart. Their 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 uh, assumption was that it would blow the carcass apart and anything left over would be small enough to be taken care of by seagulls and scavenger animals and stuff. But it didn't because, as I mentioned in that clip there, a, a large piece yeah, fell on this car and, and crumpled it completely. But yeah, I, think you're, I, I don't think anyone would, would come up with a, a, you know, such a, a... and then you know invite people to come and watch it. Yeah, I think attitudes to... Um, 
deceased wildlife have uh, possibly moved on a little bit since then and people would definitely be upset if they proposed doing uh, quite the same thing today. Mm, Didn't think it through. Mm. Look, there's another text for you before we end. Um, Colin needs to try Pick's crunchy peanut butter. No slime there. Uh, I I think we actually have it in the cupboard. Okay, at home, but you're not going to comment any further. No, I'm not. I'm, I'm going to stand up for the the peanut and the integrity, the way it was meant to be, rather than being smashed up and smothered in oil. I believe that the British government tried to invest in or get its former African colonies to grow peanuts um, back in the earlier part of last century, and they thought that the name peanut had become somehow degraded, so they called it, you know, the something like the uh, colonial African groundnut scheme. They tried to rebrand them as ground nuts because they thought peanuts had a kind of low-grade reputation. Mm, That's an interesting fact. Thank you very much, Colin. Thanks a lot. (laughs) No worries. (laughs) Full of it. We started Uh, with peanuts, we ended with them. We did. We came full circle. Mm. Thanks very much. I'll talk to you soon. Thanks a lot.